Welcome to Afternoon Light, the podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute, hosted by Georgina Downer. Hello and welcome to Afternoon Light. In today's episode, I am speaking to Frank Wan, who is a history PhD candidate at the University of Sydney, where he's currently researching Australia-China relations since 1949. Welcome to Afternoon Light, Frank. Thank you, Georgina. It's great to be here. It's great to have you on. And today we're going to talk about actually a bit earlier than your thesis, what your research is currently focused on, but then afterwards about Robert Menzies and China and the United States. Fascinating to read your research and your publications to date, Frank, and of course, lots of lessons for us today. But can you tell me about Robert Menzies' attitude to the United States before he becomes Prime Minister for the first time. So we're talking 1930s, because I think it's quite informative. Absolutely. So he went to the US in 1935 as a, the Attorney General in the cabinet of Joseph Lyons. And he was by then, I think a 40, 41-year-old up-and-coming political figure and already with the uh, potential for leadership. So when he went to the U.S., that was immediately following his first ever trip overseas and to the United Kingdom. That's his, of course, uh, spiritual homeland. And his sense of Britishness was particularly elevated. So we should probably keep that in mind. And I think that somewhat excuses some of the fairly critical comments he would make in his stories of the United States. But luckily for him, he was eased into the U.S. by traveling to Canada first after the U.K. So there's a sort of intermediate zone. But already on the cruise across the Atlantic, he began to feel certain discomfort. That wasn't seasickness, Frank. Not just seasickness. So he seemed to be doing, dealing with the cruise fine. He said he was catching up with some sleep and therefore avoiding the harsh-sounding Canadian-American accents. And he said in his diary, it's difficult to understand the American interest in music, for their monotonous speaking voices always suggested to me that they are tone deaf. So that's <laughs> not a great start. <laughs> brutal, brutal. <laughs> oh, absolutely, absolutely. So I think, of course, later in his life, he would uh, mellow quite a bit. So in Canada, he observed that most French Canadians were not pro-France, but pro-Britain, because he recorded France was now a republic, it was irreligious, and had abandoned the old feudal idea. So if that can be said of France, at least two out of those three could have been said of America. On the other hand, he was thrilled to explore, he said, what is to me a new land with language, ideas, and even physical appearance very different from our own. And indeed, he more or less saw what he expected to see which was a society that contrasted quite unfavorably with Britain and a British Australia. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it will be uh, quite helpful to sort of go into some specifics here. I mean, partly because of the historical value, but also for what he reveals about his thoughts and the themes that he would develop about America later on. So in New York City, that's his first stop in the US. He was dazed by the splendor of its built environment but also saw economic absurdity everywhere, especially with the, uh, the skyscrapers. He noted that tubes, the rail transport, was full of, quote, the mixed races of the world, as well as noting the concentration of black American population at one end of the Central Park. So he was noticing the racial problems there. 
He wrote that Alexander Hamilton's spirit from his burial ground near Wall Street rooted over degenerate 1935. So it was a prosperous society, but also full of problems and danger of decline. And he was the seat of the U.S. Congress. He found the Capitol to be a fine building, but its chambers were plotted with statues of mediocrities, its debates and its contempt. So it doesn't reach a standard of parliament at Westminster at all. It's interesting. So his experience of the United States is very much, as you said, coloured by having just recently visited Britain and he has a kind of an eye. He idolises Britain and, and that Westminster system and the figures of British history whereas he's got this incredible scepticism about the United States as a kind of political and democratic project, doesn't he? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, he did appreciate its history. So he visited Washington, D.C., of course. He not only enjoyed the uh, architecture, but I think reflected upon part of American history, and he really enjoyed how they were doing a good job of preserving the historical sites. But in terms of the institution of government institutions, he was quite sceptical. And the more he observed, the more problems he seemed to identify. Do you think that was a bias, though? Because he obviously recognised Australia's political system in the British system and America's political system, a presidential system, very different to how Australia's system operates. It's just unfamiliar, but he seems to think that it's inherently flawed, doesn't he? Yes. So in terms of, yes, the presidential system and presidential politics, again, his view is sort of moderated later in life, and he sort of saw how that system, in a sense, evolved in America to suit its conditions in some sense, and that it functioned in its own way. But I think he probably continued to hold on to this critique he developed in 1935, especially the separation between the executive, the presidency, and the legislature, uh, the Congress, meant that members of Congress were denied the normal avenues of promotion to power and naturally become irresponsible. That's a direct quote. He continues, both president and ministers, cabinet members, may very well be innocent of potential knowledge and experience and not sufficiently conscious of practical principles of political action. And he believed that cardinal errors made when America was banded to depart from the system of a parliamentary executive. Does he see in identifying the problems of the presidential system as he used it anyway, that explains the errors made by the United States? Because he he obviously has a problem with certain aspects of particularly US foreign policy insofar as it affects the world. He's opposed to US isolationism. Does he see those decisions as coming from an administration, a president and ministers who are inexperienced because they haven't come through Congress necessarily, although most of them would have, I guess? Yeah, I would agree, yes. So in 1960, for instance, with the presidential election between Richard Nixon and John F. Kennedy, he observed that both candidates tend to put forward fairly hawkish, uncompromising positions on foreign policy, which they will have to retreat from. Now, I think that critique does not necessarily entail an inevitability 
of bad policy, but more the aesthetics of it or the uh, the rhetoric. But that certainly carries a, a danger. And he was aghast at Eisenhower's suggestion, also in 1960, that the world should have a vote, a global vote, on whether people prefer to live under Soviet communism or, or liberal democratic capitalism. And I think he saw that as, again, deriving from the power of the president's position and the high-octane atmosphere of an election cycle. Yeah, it's quite an extraordinary proposal for a US president <laughs> to make. I mean, how would this ballot have been run? <laughs> That's right, yeah. And I suspect was, also he wouldn't have been too... Was it empty rhetoric from Eisenhower or was it... <laughs> well, I'm afraid it should be left to perhaps an Americanist, but I did find it was reported on Australia's press at the time, but not taken as a you know major international development. So I suspect that the Australian press were quite rightly probably treated as more of a rhetoric than a genuine you know instrument in Cold War policy. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Frank, Menzies is very concerned about US isolationism and, you know, across history it sort of ebbs and flows. Why was that? Because he was very sceptical about American decision-making when it came to foreign policy. He often thought that they really couldn't be trusted, they were a bit flaky. Why did he oppose isolationism so much? That's a great question and a great dilemma that you've identified that yeah, Menzies was skeptical both of American over-involvement potentially in certain ways and of America not involving itself in the world at all. And I think that's persistent skepticism that all Australian policymakers, at least since Menzies, have had. I think fundamentally it derives from his civic republicanism, which one of your previous guests talked about, this idea that if you have a greater endowment, if you have greater power that you've acquired for yourself, then it's almost part of a natural law that you use that power for the good of the wider community. And that's also in one's self-interest, and certainly when it comes to international affairs. So I think it did distinguish the logic in international affair from the logic of a national organic polity. But there's certain underlying moral or philosophical common assumption there. He did notice, for instance, in 1935, that Isolationism, the strength of the Monroe Doctrine of keeping external powers out of the Western Hemisphere, but also keeping American power within the Western Hemisphere, that being a highly dangerous strand of thought in 1935. And he continued to wrestle with that, try to answer the question to himself whether America has overcome that for the next decade and a half until, I think, America's intervention in the Korean War, which I think for him resolved the, uh, the question. Yeah. Well, I think the Cold War resolves the question just sort of in general, doesn't it? Frank, Menzies becomes Prime Minister in 1939 and then, of course, Australia enters World War II with Britain. Menzies establishes the first Australian diplomatic mission to Washington, which is a pretty significant event. And this is Australia, of course, developing its foreign policy and identity outside of Britain. It's starting to expand a diplomatic network because it can, because it needs to. How significant was this step? I mean, Menzies is a US sceptic, I guess you could describe, but he's investing in this relationship very seriously, which of course he has to. Yeah, I think it is significant in several ways. So absolutely, as you said, it's a formalisation of Australia's diplomatic network. The first time that Australia established any sort of embassy level or legation 
level representation overseas. So prior to that, Australia had been represented in Washington by and through the British embassy. So previous conservative governments, I think, from Stanley Bruce had appointed Australian diplomats to be attached in the British embassy. But it's Menzies who decided to formalise that and to establish Australia's own representation. And it was a substantial commitment because the first minister, it was called at the time, to be dispatched to Washington was Richard Casey. Now, some might say that it's also politically convenient to send away a potential rival, another prominent political figure overseas so that they don't become potential adversary. But another significance was that it's part of a wider move. So Australia also established legations in Tokyo and Chongqing. So Chongqing being China's wartime capital, because by 1939, China being led by primarily by uh, Chiang Kai-shek, had retreated uh, to Chongqing to fight the uh, Japanese invasion. But at the time, Australia was trying to maintain a line of communication with Tokyo while trying to coordinate better with a potential ally, China. And to have representation in Washington meant that Australia could also more directly coordinate with the US over Pacific affairs and potentially to add more weight to Britain's pleas for further U.S. involvement in the war against Nazi Germany. Throughout World War II, and of course Menzies retires or resigns as Prime Minister in 1941, but Menzies' attitude to the United States does evolve quite a bit, doesn't it? I mean, you have the disappointment with the fall of Singapore, the disappointment on Australia's behalf of the lack of British commitment there. There's Menzies' issues dealing with Churchill, of course, how did this whole experience of the Second World War lead to Menzies' attitude to the United States changing and evolving? Yes, of course. So, so just on a, I guess, an anecdotal note, Menzies' resignation in late 1941 could partly be attributed to the length of his overseas trip. And, of course, they found it necessary, indeed, to make a stopover in the United States after Britain. But, of course, I would say he didn't have any regrets over that necessary stopover in the US. And in terms of views about the United States, so in his 1941 trip, he was still somewhat concerned that Americans did not understand how inherently tied their interest was to the fate of Britain. So one thing he pointed out in his diary at the time and later on in his memoir, Afternoon Light, was that one of the slogans was help Britain. But he said, no, they should be saying Helping Britain is helping ourselves. So this idea that this world organic community did not seem to have quite caught on with the Americans. But by that time, America had already enlarged its aid program, or rather instituted an aid program to Britain in the form of land lease. So, of course, with land lease, for Menzies, that gave substance to the friendship between the U.S. and Britain. Now, a friendship is, the, I think, the appropriate word, because if you look at his writing then and even later on, even in his public speeches, he never identified America as part of this Anglo-Saxon British family. He did use the term Anglo-Saxon, which I guess, funny enough, sort of obscures his own Scottish heritage. But again, I think a shorthand for the wider British family. But yeah, on the other hand, precisely because they did not belong to that wider British family, he did cut them some slack and said in his, either his diary or, or his, one of his radio broadcasts that we shouldn't assume that America will automatically stand with us in any world conflict. So he was conscious of that. He was very realistic in that way. 
But of course, the landlord had, a, I think, another dimension, which was that he quite presently saw that it portended a major economic adjustment, an adjustment in international trade order after the war. And it's not entirely to be welcomed, even though he did agree that, yes, trade and decent commerce, as he called it, will, will help ensure international peace, but it will need to be shepherded by the most liberal statesmanship. On the other hand, he was cautious that what this new international trade would entail was a weakening of the imperial preferences between Britain and the Dominions, and potentially having Australia feeling America's economic weight even more. Yeah, well, and of course, Australia had to really grapple with that as the UK lent more and more towards entering the European economic community. After World War II, and we were, of course, then seeing the rise of Menzies again through the development of the Liberal Party, and then Menzies becomes Prime Minister for a second time in 1949. The world has changed enormously since he was Prime Minister the first time from 39 to 41. Again, Menzies is grappling with a different America in a way, playing a much bigger role on the world stage than at least in sort of Menzies' eyes than it had prior to World War II. How does he reconcile that? Because this is a time when Menzies has got to take the United States as a sort of preferred security partner, trade partner, very, very seriously. That's just the reality of declining empire and Britain's economic situation being incredibly difficult. This is America's time and that means Australia needs to deal in. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And he was, I think, somewhat daunted initially by that prospect, at least, again, according to his diaries in 1948. By the way, he only kept a diary, I think, when he's traveling overseas, and they appropriately stop whenever he gets back to Australia. But yes, he went to America in late 48, and he observed that, yes, the isolationism had been entirely purged from American political culture. America fighting in the Second World War really confirmed their identification with, and he used the term, the civilized world. But yes, by 48, there's no question about American involvement. The major question now was, do they have the subtlety, the art of statecraft? So for one, he was a bit concerned that the Americans seemed to be pushing for closer European integration, which of course would come at the expense of British Commonwealth, or rebranded British Empire, sort of uh, the traditional association, especially in trade policy. So that concern early on now seemed to materialize. On the other hand, I think he was somewhat reassured that Truman appeared to be a capable individual. But of course, with Korean War, I think there's a renewed concern about whether America was ready to assume the responsibility and to use its power in a careful manner. So he was, at almost every step, more cautious, consistently more cautious than whichever administration that was in the White House. So with the Korean War, for instance, as one of the previous guests mentioned, James Curran mentioned, Menzies and his colleagues wanted to keep open the possibility of recognizing China, a communist China, ever since it was established in 49. But with the arrival of the Korean, the Korean War, there's a complication. However, even then, even in December of 1950, that's after China had intervened in a very dramatic manner into the war, he wanted to keep that possibility open. So, for instance, he tried to talk America out of 
condemning China as an aggressor in the United Nations resolution or try to impose too strict an embargo on China. So those were, I think, measures he believed would have cut off that possibility and potentially increased the risk of an escalation, so an outright war between America and China. Frank, how did Menzies view China's entry into the Korean War and obviously on the side of the North Koreans rather than the side of the UN-backed forces, which Australia was involved in? So you're saying he's trying to moderate America's approach to China on this issue, but China is an aggressor in this instance. How did he explain that? So I think he fundamentally agreed with America's policy, which was to fight the Korean War and not let the communist forces take over the peninsula. And I think he recognized that within the U.S., there's divided opinions. Of course, as we know now, the Truman administration was more cautious. The uh, General MacArthur, as the military commander, was, I suppose, much more willing to take the risk of escalation. So I think Menzies fundamentally saw it as a crisis that needed to be contained. And I think a crucial distinction, perhaps, between him and perhaps even many American policymakers at the time was that he didn't believe that China was fundamentally, implacably aggressive. So again, I think this is where his realism came out in the sense that he believed that states were more or less rational actors calculating risks and benefits and that it wasn't a madman in control of China, were therefore unable to be deterred. I think he started with that assumption that China could be deterred, but you need to be tactful. And that also implied that you could have dialogue with them down the road. Yeah, and this is quite interesting. And in contrast, of course, to the way Menzies deals with and thinks about the Soviet Union, where he does see Soviet Union and its aspirations for the expansion of communism globally of international communism, he sees that as a major threat, whereas you're saying with China, he had a much more nuanced view. I think so, yes. So I don't think we have many records directly pertaining to Menzi's own assessment about China specifically, but from the policies he advocated for, positions he held and insisted upon despite pressure, I think we can infer that very much his view on China fundamentally. So yes, the idea that you need to recognize China eventually, it's only a matter of time, as he, as he said, but also from how he pretty much ignored American pressure and continued to allow the Australian Wheat Board to uh, sell wheat to China in huge quantities. Now, the Wheat Board was a statutory body, wasn't directly run from Canberra, but Menzies wanted to put a stop to it. He could have easily. But he very much backed McEwen. So John McEwen, the leader of the uh, country party and minister responsible for trade. Now, one could argue that the two of them play a bit of a good cop, bad cop towards the Americans, so that McEwen came across as the assertive one and insisted on the trade. But I think certainly did have Menzies' blessing to uh, withstand American pressure. And remember that trade continued throughout the height of the Vietnam War, even while Australia was sending troops to Vietnam to, again, ostensibly fight a Chinese-backed force. And Menzies explicitly invoked that imagery, while, of course, being attacked uh, by Arthur Colwell in the parliament that it's a hypocritical policy to claim that you are fighting Chinese communism while sending them wheat, but also a war, of course, another major commodity. When it comes to the Vietnam War, Menzies again has a bit of a nuanced view. This wasn't a wholehearted commitment of Australian troops. Mm-hmm. Menzies wants America to be globally responsible, but also has 
continues a bit of a scepticism about American judgment in the international arena. How does his attitude towards the US and Vietnam and the Vietnam War, can you explain it? Well, one might try. It's a hugely complex historical question, of course. So I think we might start by pointing out that in the mid-1950s, so with the so-called offshore island crisis or the Akumoi Matsu crisis, that's armed conflict between communist China and the Chiang Kai-shek nationalist holdout based on Taiwan, but operating from those offshore islands just off the coast of China, probably 10, 20 kilometers away from the coast. So there were two episodes in which they basically engaged in exchange of artillery gunfire, which then threatened to potentially escalate. And America was trying to decide whether or not it will intervene back up the Chinese nationalists against the communists because there's the risk of those islands being overrun by communist forces potentially proving a morale boost or a major devastating blow to all anti-communist forces, so the Americans thought, throughout Southeast Asia. And Menzies was very, very cautious. On both occasions, he tried to restrain the Americans from intervention. And of course, when the French were losing in Vietnam in 1954, the Eisenhower administration again weighed up intervening directly, and Menzies again tried to uh, restrain them. But it seemed that something changed in the early 60s to mid-60s, so that Australia became, if anything, more enthusiastic about committing troops to Vietnam than even America was at the time, certainly by 1965. And that's well covered by scholarly studies. So I think with Vietnam, there are several factors. So one, of course, the assessment of China's threat level had changed by then. So whereas in the 50s, Menzies could easily have believed that, and it did believe that China was more or less able to be deterred and wasn't too adventurous. I think by the early 60s, with what China's war with India over the uh, Himalayas in 62, and then China's successful test of the nuclear bomb, he was concerned that China was now more willing to take those risks and therefore it necessitated America to be standing up for South Vietnam. But also this clear recognition that Britain was no longer there in any sense as a global power and therefore being the security guarantor in Asia. And the only thing left was the United States. And this tied into his conception of an imperial power and the proper conduct of world responsibility. So remember, of course, for him, an imperial power, imperialism was entirely positive. It was about assuming the responsibility to advance the cost of freedom, of progress, both in the economic sense and in, in the human sense. To do so, you need a strong state. It was fundamentally a realist. You need the military power, the economic throwaway to put into it. And if America did not make a stand in Vietnam, it's not just South Vietnam that would be lost, but the principle, I think, in his mind, the principle that we can have a global order geared towards human progress, underpinned by this global superpower that was willing to, as John F. Kennedy put it, pay any price, bear any burden. And in order to, to ensure that principle stands, you need to, of course, in his mind, quite consistently, I think, you need to embody it whenever it's challenged. So I think that's the significance of Vietnam. Now, of course, there's the more realist 
sort of material calculation behind it, which was that we can also leverage Australia's strength or limited involvement to get America to commit massively into Vietnam. But I think for him, that commitment was both itself important, but also it would establish that principle of imperial responsibility in America's political culture. And I guess for a while you could say it succeeded because America did stay there despite all the setbacks for nearly a decade. And certainly for the first few years, it seemed that they were turning the tide of war. Do you think that Menzies' assessment of the changing nature of the China threat, for want of a better term, from time of the Korean War where he thought it was relatively easy to deter and not of great concern and that Australia should try and moderate the US approach to China to then in the mid-60s quite a different conception of the China threat where he was concerned that they couldn't be deterred, that they would have to be managed and actually confronted because they were starting to become more aggressive. Do you think that was right? Was he right in the 50s and then right in the 60s or...? (laughs) So I'm sure about, I think certainly in the 50s, that's, I'd say that's broadly correct, but I would need to consult with people with the expertise in Chinese foreign policy. Although my impression is that there's been debate as to whether China under Mao really did want to establish a sphere of influence, whether they thought that was possible or whether that's more for the domestic consumption or perhaps, again, a more actively defensive, a certain active kind of way of ensuring that America did not completely strangle them. Although I will point out that even back in 1964-65, there were assessments within both Washington and Canberra that China were actually fairly concerned that the United States would intervene directly against China. So they were afraid, and Australian policymakers knew that. So I think a mutual suspicion between China and the United States, and I suppose by extension Australia, that either side would overstep the line. But of course, I guess they've forgotten maybe under-investigated part of the history of the Vietnam War was that, unlike in the Korean War, neither of the major powers, I suppose, overstepped the line and escalated the conflict into a, a direct confrontation. But it's hard to answer this question, I suppose. Yeah. For Australia, ANZUS, the alliance with the United States, was signed in 1951 by Australia. And But how did it develop into such central importance for Australia in terms of its foreign and strategic policy? Because in 51, Menzies, he says it's signed on a, what's it, foundation of jelly. He's a bit of an ANZUS sceptic. Australia signs it under his watch, of course. But there are instances where JFK is saying over confrontazi with Indonesia, would Australia don't think that ANZUS applies here if you get into problems with Indonesia. There are times when ANZUS is not exactly... (laughs) doing what it should, but it is of central importance, isn't it, by the time you get to Vietnam? Yes, absolutely. And I think Menzies would have, again, reconciled those shortfalls of the conduct of the alliance with the idea of establishing an organic community between Australia, perhaps Britain and America within his existing intellectual framework. So America's reluctance for him to intervene in the case of Confrontazi with Indonesia probably more had to do with America's own assessment of its interests, particular interests, and with Australia's assessment of its interests and and the differences there. But of course, in a sense, he already had to deal with that shock uh, with 
Britain's failure to come to Australia's rescue, or some would put it that way, in 1942, in early 1942. And his response, and mind you, to be fair, um, the response from people like John Curtin was to double down on that community of interest. So I think it could easily have been reconciled with the idea that, yes, we need to continue to build this alliance or build this broader community with America. And there's also, again, the realistic concern, the pragmatic concern for him, which was that Britain simply no longer able to serve as this partner in security. So in the mid-50s, it was under his watch that Australia began to standardize its military equipment with America because of the recognition that only America could maintain the, both the supply line and indeed the manufacturing capacity and perhaps the innovation of those equipment and weaponry that's suitable for Australia's needs. Do you think, Frank, that Menzies' worldview changed fundamentally from that first trip in 1935 to the United States to his retirement, say, in 1966? Perhaps an unexpected aspect, I will say, and this can be contentious, but I would say his view on race moderated in a fairly fundamental way thanks to his experience with the United States. So, of course, in 1935, he observed quite disapprovingly of the um, of the non-white or rather non-Anglo-Saxon component in the American society. But subsequently, and certainly in the 60s, his view really began to soften so that he could declare that immigration, and again, this is fairly limited because he was still defending the Australia's exclusion of migrants from Asia in, in any significant number, but he was saying that immigration, at least from other parts of Europe, actually enhanced national power and it did not fundamentally challenge the British outlook or the deep-rooted institutions in Australia. And partly, he already saw that America's uh, political institutions, despite his misgivings, were functioning well and operating more or less smoothly and continuing to propel America towards the status of a responsible global superpower. So those institutions are continuing to run despite the ethnic makeup of the US. And indeed, the best part of those institutions, he believed, came from the British tradition. So if that could work in America, there's no reason why that couldn't have worked in Australia. And indeed, I think just after retirement, he resigned admission that, yes, immigration will weaken our British outlook, but our fundamental institutions will survive. And I think that fitted into his concept of an organically evolving community and that the best traditions are able to stand the test of time and the changing circumstances. So I think another aspect of the evolution in Menzies' worldview was the recognition that America was now the sole superpower that we can have, but that it can and is in the process, at least by mid-60s for him, was in the process of becoming the responsible global superpower. That's the best hope of the Western world and the heir to Britain's institutions and traditions. And again, I think that goes back to his idea that institutions and traditions organically evolve and will adapt to the changing circumstances. But of course, later on, I think he was unfortunate enough to have then witnessed the Watergate scandal, and he was personal friends with Richard Nixon. So I think perhaps towards the end of his life, he probably suffered a bit of a uh, crisis of confidence. So I suppose that's a bit of a personal tragedy for him, but also, on the other hand, it perhaps did uh, vindicate his earlier scepticism about America. 
Yet, on the other hand, I think as a conservative, he never believed that arc of history would bend without any zigzag towards progress. So I think he would have been prepared for those setbacks. Indeed, and the outcome of the Watergate scandal was that the institutions stand stronger than any one individual. Absolutely. We've seen that in recent US history too. The, yes, the, indeed. The US institutions of democracy, pretty mighty, pretty resilient to the whims of individuals and their own frailties and failings. Absolutely. And I think Menzies was wise enough to see both the failings and potentials for self-correction, at least, of those institutions. Indeed. That was a good addendum. Thank you very much, Frank. This has been a fascinating look at the evolution of Menzies' attitude to the United States and the way he conceived of US power, particularly as it related to China as well. Thank you so much for your time today and joining me on Afternoon Light. Thank you, Georgina. It's been great. That's it for this week's episode of Afternoon Light, the podcast at the Robert Menzies Institute. Please make sure to subscribe and catch up on our latest online content on our website or on Twitter, LinkedIn or Facebook.